Hello, church. My name is Chris, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scripture from John 1, 43 to 51, and John 20, 24 to 25. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church, uh, especially for those that are new or visiting, and for those that are joining us online, we want to welcome you, and we hope that today will be a time uh, where you are blessed by the reading of God's word and the preaching of God's word. Um, for the majority of my early 20s, or the majority of my 20s, I was part of a parachurch organization where the main aim and purpose was to raise and train college students to have a uh, very mission-focused mindset. Uh, this idea of fulfilling the Great Commission. And this, uh, main, the main highlight or the main purpose of this parachurch ministry uh, was that every summer uh, they would train about, you know, roughly about 80 to 100 students uh, to sp uh, spend about a month uh, overseas in a different country uh, doing missions work. Or, you know, in, the, in this case it was a lot of vacation Bible school, maybe teaching some English, uh, doing some skits and like paramount, you know, like, and then like weird dance stuff. And uh, it was really kind of this, with, with a focus of saying, you know, we're sending you guys to preach the gospel with the hopes that you would be uh, trained or perhaps have a heart and a desire to become full-time missionaries. And I remember thinking, now when I think back, I'm like, well, that was kind of crazy. Like, you know, we would spend uh, like four months training, you know, like every Sunday and then, you know, a week in Mexico. You know, we do like some crazy stuff. And and I always ask myself and I wonder, like, why was it that I was so into this ministry? And, and not that uh, there was anything wrong with being a part of this ministry or being a part of a parachurch, but uh, just wondering, like, looking back, I'm like, man, did I waste my 20s? Like, I could have been doing other things, you know, and, 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 but the reason why is because there was a deep sense of purpose, a deep sense of meaning with this, uh, with, with the message was we are fulfilling the great commission of God. And, and I still agree with that meaning and purpose, uh, but it was this interesting idea where perhaps for myself and, and many of us, we have a desire to live a life of deep meaning and deep purpose. 
And it doesn't have to be a parachurch. Uh, perhaps it's your career. Perhaps it's your studies. Perhaps it's your family. Or perhaps it's the idea of, of finding a, a significant other. But we all desire and we all have this longing to have a life that is filled with meaning. That is filled with this idea of that, that we are fulfilling some sort of purpose that our life is not just a waste, our, that our life is not just something that we are um, just living day to day without any sort of significance. And whether it's, um, you, you know, you're kind of in that phase right now or whether you are in a phase where you're kind of like, oh, I'm actually not doing anything. Yeah, but but I, deep down, the, the longing that we always come back to is that we want our lives to matter. We want our lives to be something that uh, um, we can look back on and, and be proud of and say, yeah, we did fulfill our potential. We did live our lives uh, to the fullest. And so as we continue on in our sermon series through the book of John, uh, one of the things that we want to talk about and one of the things I want to focus on is really the calling of the disciples. As, as Jesus calls his disciples and as they are seeking and as they are trying to fulfill a life, to live a life of meaning and purpose. And so we're going to look at the call of Nathaniel and some of the other disciples. And we're also going to look back in chapter 20 of the encounter that Jesus has with the doubting disciple Thomas. And we're going to see how uh, Jesus is the very foundation of the meaning and purpose of our lives. And we're going to look at how every single one of us, uh, that we have a deep longing to find significance, to find meaning and purpose in our lives. Uh, how the foundation of that purpose is rooted and founded upon the authority and rule of Jesus as our Lord. And lastly, we're going to look at some of the things that are in opposition to us living out a life of purpose. So first, the longing and of, of meaning and purpose that we all have. Uh, it, when we look at this first passage that we read, uh, it's interesting because it's, it begins with a story of, of some people who are uh, really seeking out meaning and purpose in their lives. Right, there are some unnamed disciples who are following uh, John the Baptist, right? And uh, in our previous passage, we, we talked about the encounter that John the Baptist had with Jesus as John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Well, John the Baptist also had some followers. He also had some disciples who were, uh, you know, kind of just following him around and, and, you know, doing what he was doing. And they were, these disciples are present when John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sin of the world. And so these disciples, with no allegiance and no loyalty whatsoever, they start following Jesus. Right? They're like, oh, John the Baptist, thanks for what you did, but now I'm going to follow this guy. And, and uh, the story is that Jesus turns around and, and, and says to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And I think that's the question that oftentimes that we all, we all ask ourselves. What, what are we seeking in this life? Uh, what, what is it that we actually want? And when we look at the, the, the culture of what's happening a couple thousand years ago, these men, uh, they don't have the freedom or the liberty to kind of drop everything to seek out their purpose. You know what I mean? Especially the people who are fishermen or blue-collar workers. Uh, they don't have the same privileges that we, you know, they don't, they don't get to like talk, talk to their dad and be like, hey, um, you know, uh, I, I think I want to take a leap year or a gap year. And, you know, like kind of just travel the world. I want to follow this guy. He's out in, you know, the Jordan River. And I just want to find myself. They, they ain't got time for that. 
You know, but we do. You know, we're like, oh, you know what, I'm kind of in between jobs because I want to figure out what I want to do. Or, you know what, I'm in the midst of a career change because I have this, like, deep desire to really find myself. Or, you know, I'm going to go backpacking across Europe because, you know, I, I think it's time for me to, to find out who I am. You know, like, they didn't have that, that um, you know, that ability. But yet, here we see stories of these young men, blue-collar workers, fishermen, uh, whatever it is that they do, um, they've actually dropped everything to become disciples of this man who was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And now they are dropping John the Baptist to follow this Jesus who has been proclaimed the Lamb of God, the, son, the, the, you know, the, the, the one who takes away the sin of the world, and they are seeking after him. And Jesus turns and confronts them and says, what are you seeking? And this goes to the point that as human beings that we all have a deep sense of longing, a deep sense to really find a meaning and purpose in our lives. And unfortunately, we seek to uh, fill that longing with a, a lot of the things that this world has to offer that in, in inevitably will never satisfy that longing. Uh, depending on what stage of your life that you are in, there's always that one hope, that one thing that you think, as long as I can have that, my life will be filled with meaning. As long as I find uh, my partner, the, my significant other, then everything else will get in place. Or as long as I am accepted into this program, or as long as I am accepted into this grad school, then my life will start uh, finally start getting in place. Or as long as I graduate, or as long as I get into this job, or as long as I, I'm successful in my career, then we think that there will be some sort of meaning and significance in our lives that, is, uh, that we find as a void in our hearts. But in every aspect, no matter what you seek after and no matter what you achieve, what you will end up is having a deeper longing because you will know that there's nothing in this world that can absolutely fill that hole. Um, you know, Pastor Eugene, he, he quotes this often, and um, I agree with this quote. It's from C.S. Lewis. says this, if we find ourselves... With a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I believe these disciples, they understood this to a certain degree, and that's why they are seeking after Jesus. They are following him. And he says to these unnamed disciples, come and see. Now, after that encounter in verse 43, what we have now is that Jesus decides to go to Galilee. And he finds another disciple or a future disciple named Philip. And to Philip, he says, follow me. And then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, come. And, and, and I found the person that, everyone, that Moses in the law and the Old Testament prophets had been speaking of. And he says to Nathaniel, come and see. And Nathaniel has an encounter with Jesus. He is kind of, question, he questions the fact. He's like, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then he has this encounter with Jesus. Jesus says, weren't you, I saw you under the fig tree. And, and, and Nathaniel, he answers him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And in that encounter, what we understand is that for Nathaniel, he has finally found the person in whom he will find complete fulfillment and satisfaction in seeking to live a life of meaning and purpose in his life. And that moves us on to our next point, the foundation of our purpose. 
See, in order for us to understand the purpose that we have in Jesus, we have to allow um, Jesus to be the absolute ruler and authority of our lives. And now this is a passage that we read, and we read it independently. We think that this is a story just found in the New Testament. But for a Jewish reader, especially a good religious Jewish reader, they would understand that this encounter or the way that John writes this encounter is a throwback, and it alludes to something that happened back in the Old Testament. So now stay with me. I'm going to refer back to the Old Testament in two different places to show exactly how Jesus or John is communicating that Jesus is the very foundation of our meaning and purpose. And not only is Jesus the foundation, but that it is dependent upon our surrendering to his rule and authority in our lives that allows us to really live a life of meaning and purpose. So now in this passage, what we have is a man named Nathaniel, and when Jesus sees Nathanael, he says, there is a, behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And for a Jewish reader of this time, they would understand that this phrase is referring back to a story in Genesis about a Israelite or a man who was full of deceit. Uh, and this man is a man named Jacob. Uh, Jacob, if you guys don't know the story, he is the son or the second son of Isaac. Uh, he has an older twin brother named Esau. Uh, and when Esau and I, Jacob were born, Esau was born first. That's why he's the older brother. And Jacob was born right after Esau. And he was born grabbing the heel of his brother. Okay, so the name e Jacob literally means heel grabber. Now, uh, it's not only the fact that he was grabbing his heel, but the idea or the uh, understanding of this phrase, heel grabber, is that Jacob is a person who is willing to trip up or, or, or uh, impede the progress of somebody in order to supplant that position. Okay, so the picture is for a heel grabber is that if you're in a race, you're running behind that person and you'll grab their heel and you'll trip them up so that you can overtake them in their position. And for Jacob, throughout the stories in Genesis, what we understand is that he's willing to do anything to supplant that position. And he's willing to even use deception to do so. So uh, Jacob, he, you know, and his mom, who is a little, little toxic, uh, tricks his dad into believing that he is Esau. He wears like a, you know, like furry clothes and, you know, Isaac's blind. He's like, oh, you're my son. You don't sound like Esau, but I guess you are, you know. Uh, and he, he steals Esau's birthright through deception. Uh, later on, he meets um, his future father-in-law, who is an equal match in his deception. So Laban tricks Jacob into marrying his ugly daughter when he wanted to marry the pretty daughter. So he had to marry both, you know. Um, and then, but Jacob gets his revenge by tricking Laban and, and utilizing uh, trickery to be able to amass a great fortune. Um, and then what we have is uh, an instance where Jacob is having to return to his hometown or his home country. He has to encounter Esau. Again, he tries to use trickery to try to gain Esau's favor. Uh, but now in Genesis 32, what we have is an uh, encounter between Jacob and God. Okay? Uh, Jacob and God where Jacob wrestles God. Now, I'm going to read this passage for us, and it says this. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford, the Jabuk, 
and he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Okay. Um, I'm actually going to stop there for time's sake. When I used to read this passage, I used to always think that Jacob, uh, because he's a strong dude. Okay? Now, I know he's afraid of Esau, but um, Jacob, he's like a man's man. He, he was able to lift up uh, the stone that was covering the well. Uh, he really impressed Rachel because due to his strength. Uh, so he's not like a weak guy. And I used to always assume that he out-wrestled God. I was like, dang, like this guy knows some jiu-jitsu or something, right? Uh, and, and in this phrasing, it's a little weird. Hello. Okay. It's a little weird. Uh, God's like, no, you're saying something wrong. Jacob did not beat me. Turn off my mic. <laughs> Anyways. Um, in this phrasing, it's weird because as he encounters with God, it says, then, or God speaking, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. It says, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And I, I assume that he meant, oh, you prevailed against God and men. But that's not what, the, uh, what he's saying. He's saying you, you, you striven with God, and he's saying, and you usually succeeded against men, but here you did not. Here you did not. It wasn't a test of physical, it wasn't, you know, a test of physical strength because God easily touches his hip and dislocates his hip. So when it says that God was, and Jacob were wrestling all throughout the night, what was happening was this. God was requiring Jacob to surrender his rule and authority to the greater purpose of who God is, to a greater authority God. But Jacob, in his stubbornness, in his desire to keep control of his life, would not submit to the rule and authority of God. And then finally, when day is about to break and God sees that Jacob is not going to surrender to him, he's about to leave. And at that moment, Jacob realizes that when God leaves, that he will be left to, his, to himself. And so now he falls and clings to God. See, previously, Jacob, the name meaning heel grabber, was that he was willing to trip up or grab the heel of whoever was in front of him in order for him to supplant that position. But now, finally, in humility, he is down clinging to God, showing complete dependence upon him. And he clings to him and says, I will not let go until you finally bless me. And in that encounter, what was happening was Jacob is now finally willing to surrender himself to the full authority of who God is. And therefore, God renames him Israel. Now, when someone renames somebody, what he is showing is their rule and authority over that being or over that person. And not only does he rename him, he renames him Israel, which literally means ruled by God. So for the New Testament reader, a Jewish reader, when they're reading this passage about Nathaniel and Jesus says there is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, they understand that this is in reference to this idea of Jacob wrestling with God. Finally, Jacob surrendering his life to the rule and authority of God. And I believe in this passage what we have 
is the very foundation of how we can live a life full of meaning and purpose. When we are disciples who are willing to surrender our lives to the rule and authority of a good God. To surrender our lives to Jesus the Lord. Now it's not only this passage that this uh, this section that uh, this passage is referring to, but in the end it says this. I say, and he said to him, Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay? Like, what is, what is that talking about? Again, it's going back to a passage in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 12 through 16, again, this is with Jacob. It says this, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to, to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Okay, so Jacob has this dream. He has, an, again, an encounter with God. And in this dream, he sees a ladder that is uh, reaching to the top of the heaven. And he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder. It's very similar to the language used here in John, right? Uh, he says, you will see heaven opened up and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And the word that comes from God to Jacob is this, is I am the Lord your God, uh, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay? In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's talking about a blessing because of the seed or the lineage through Jacob. And he says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He says, then G Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. So in this dream, what we see is, is a connection between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And that there's a ladder that is connecting it. And in, the angels of God are going up and down. And the promise that, Jesus, that God has to Jacob is that through you, the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he says, and I will never leave you. And here what Jesus is saying is that I am that ladder. Their angels will be ascending and descending upon the Son of God. Because I am the one that connects the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth. And the promise and the command that I give to Jacob is that the families of the earth shall be blessed by, you, by your offspring. And I will never leave you. And again, we see that there is uh, another uh, connection to the New Testament. In Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, it says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make, di make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what, what Jesus is, is describing here, and what we're seeing from the connection with the Old Testament in Genesis, is that when we are able to fully surrender ourselves to the rule and authority, to G, uh, our lives to the rule and authority of Jesus Christ, and when we are able to live out a purpose that is founded upon him, that there is the promise that he will never leave nor forsake us. That he will never leave nor forsake us. 
And one of the main purposes that he had for Jacob, one of the main purposes that he had for the disciples, and one of the main purposes that he has for us is this idea of blessing the families in the entire world through the offspring of Jacob, which is Jesus. This idea of making disciples of all nations, and as difficult as that may sound, the promise that he gives is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So when we're thinking about what is the true meaning and purpose of our lives, it is this. Are you willing to fully submit and surrender yourself to the Lordship of Christ? Are you willing to fully submit and surrender your lives to the rule and authority of a God who is good and gracious? Of a God, of a God who is going to challenge us to live our lives for more than our own selfish desires and gains. Jacob was a man who was willing to live his life fully for his own gain, gain at the sake of everyone else around him. He didn't care about his dad. He didn't care about Esau. He didn't care about his father-in-law. Uh, he, he only cared about himself until he had that encounter with God and fully surrendered himself to his rule and authority. In the story of John, in the, John the Gospel, what we have are these disciples who are seeking significance and meaning. And they have a glimpse that they will fully find that purpose when they follow Jesus. When they fall under his lordship. Now, then to our last point, well, what, is, what are the oppositions to this purpose? What are the things that hinder us from actually living out this purpose? What are the things that are, are, are fighting uh, for our attention and, and to live out a life that is filled with no purpose and no meaning? And, and that brings us to the second passage that we read. Right. So in John chapter 20, what we have at the end of the book of John is that after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, some of these disciples are living in hiding. They're living in a way where uh, they feel that they have lost their entire purpose and meaning in life. I mean, after all, they've been following this man, Jesus, for the last three years. They fully believed in that mission. They fully believed that he was the Messiah. They fully believed that he was going to bring about some sort of revolution for the people of Israel. And now all they know is that Jesus has been killed. And so what do they do? They lock themselves in a room because they're afraid for their lives. And Thomas... One of the 12 called the twin. I guess he had a twin brother. I don't know. Or maybe he really looked like somebody. We don't know. Uh, but he said, the other disciples were like, hey, dude, we saw Jesus. And he's like, unless I see his hands, unless I'm able to put my fingers through the hole in his hands, unless I'm able to put my you know, hands into the, the opening of his side because Jesus was pierced. Which is really weird. Morbid. I don't want to put any of my fingers in. Anyways, um, he said, unless I do that, I will not believe. And then it says, eight days later, they are again inside the house. They have locked the doors. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then it says, Thomas, in that encounter, he, he, he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, the thing is, is that the disciples, when it says that they had locked themselves in a room, um, it's not like, you know, nowadays where we just turn like a lock and like the deadbolt goes on or, you know, we go to our, on our Google Home and, like, you know, lock the doors and, bzzz, you know, it's not that. Like, they didn't have those type of sophisticated locks. They had to literally barricade themselves inside their home. You know, whether it's a big beam or whether it's whatever, you know, they put in front of the door. Because they're afraid for their lives. They are people who are now immobilized to actually living life because they are living in fear and anxiety at the fact that someone might come and arrest them and kill them. 
And, and, and as they are doing this, when they are locked inside the room, what can they do? They cannot live out their purpose. They're immobilized. They are, they are people who have been just stricken with fear. And, and the reality is, is that oftentimes the things or, or the things in life that oppose us from living out a meaningful and purposeful life is when we are filled with fear and stress at the things that have surrounded us. Now, um, there is a professor named Baba Shiv. He's a marketing professor at Stanford uh, whose research expertise is in the field of neuroeconomics. He teaches this idea of um, living and operating under two mindsets, uh, that we as human beings, that we operate under two mindsets. Um, can I get that picture? Did it work? Okay, I don't know if you guys can see. So basically, uh, he says, there were, most of the people are operating under mindset one. Uh, this is the idea. Uh, in mindset one, there's the stress and then comfort. I wish I had a, okay, stress and comfort, okay? And that's where we're, that's where we're living under. And then the mindset two is a separate axis that meets right at the middle, okay? And the goal of living life is to be living in a mindset two where we are able to experience excitement or boredom, okay? And only when we are on this axis of excitement and boredom can we actually live a life that is meaningful and purposeful and take risks to achieve something great in our lives. But the majority of us are stuck in mindset one because we're either so stressed out that we're, you know, way down here or we're living in so, or we're seeking comfort. And this idea is that we believe that unless we can get to a level of comfort, that we will not be able to try new things, right? And don't we tell ourselves that sometimes? Like, oh, we're not going to be able to take risks until I know that I'm, like, fully comfortable, you know? Some of you guys might be in a relationship, and, and one, of them, one of you guys are saying, you know, until we're financially stable, I don't want to take it to the next level, right? And you're just like, and the other person's like, come on, you know, we got, I can't wait forever, you know, like, and, and there's, there's that mindset, right? We, we feel like until we get to a certain level of comfort, we can't take risks. But what, the professor, what this professor Baba Shiva is saying is, no, that's not the reality at all. The reality is you have to have a balance, a certain balance of comfort and stress right here in the middle where the track can switch so that you can live in the other mindset of boredom and excitement. And only at that moment will you actually live a life of purpose and meaning. Now, we are living in a society, and I've experienced this firsthand, where we are so driven by comfort that now our tolerance for discomfort has made us really weak. Where we get stressed out by the, the smallest things. And when we get stressed out by small things, we'll never be able to actually live a life of meaning and purpose. So this morning, um, or this entire, I don't know, month or whatever, I, I've, I've gotten a pumpkin spice latte every morning. I love pumpkin spice latte. Like, every morning I go, I drop the kids off at school and get a pumpkin spice latte. You know, I get it with oat milk because it's delicious. Um, and, you know, you coffee snobs, it's delicious. You know it. It's so good. Sometimes my Starbucks app, it, it, it tells me, oh, pumpkin spice latte is not available at this store. And I'm like, what the heck? What do you mean it's not available at this store? And, and I believed it until one day I went into the store and I was like, 
can I get a pumpkin spice latte? And they're like, yeah, sure. And I was like, what the? It says it's not available at this store. And they're like, yeah, sometimes our app is wonky. I'm like, okay. So I was like, I'm not going to believe the app anymore. So this morning I woke up. I tried to order a pumpkin spice latte. And it says not available at this store. So I was like, liars. So I went to the store. And I was like, can I get a pumpkin spice latte? And they're like, oh, we're sorry. We ran out. I was like, and I was like, what the heck? So I had to get a chai tea latte. So I got a chai tea latte, and I took the first sip, and I was like, this has ruined my entire day. <laughs> Literally, I was at a brink where I was like, my whole day is ruined. Like, I, what am I, I don't even want to go to church. <laughs> I was like, you know, am I going to drive out of the way to get another pumpkin spice latte and have two? Like, I, was, I was so angry, and like just this small inconvenience created so much stress in my, in my day for, for like 15 minutes. And it's because we are now living in this culture and mindset where we are so, like, adamant about seeking a certain level of comfort that any sort of discomfort brings stress into our lives. And therefore, we are unable to live in that balance where we can take the risks to live out a meaningful and purposeful life. See, when Jesus died and resurrected and came back and came to the disciples, he didn't say, now that I'm resurrected, you guys can live in peace and harmony and just chill. No, he said, now that I have resurrected, the goal of you as followers of me is to take the necessary risks, to, take, uh, to live a life where you are going to be called to make disciples of all nations to take the risks to live a life in a little bit of danger to the point where you might die. Here is Thomas, who was a disciple who was unwilling, unwilling to believe in the news that Jesus has resurrected. But once he finally encounters a resurrected Jesus, he submits his life to the lordship of Christ. And he says, my Lord and my God. Now, though it's not written in Scripture, um, there's verifications, possible verifications in history that Thomas became a martyr. He became a missionary to India. He died in India. There's a church called St. Thomas's Mount, and there's a statue of Thomas, you know, and then there's all these spears in it, and that's, that's, that's the statue because he became a martyr. He was willing to take upon that risk because now his life is filled with meaning and purpose because he has surrendered himself to the lordship of Jesus. Now, um, very practically, what does that actually mean? Well, it means this. Um, another professor uh, at Stanford, her name is Jennifer Akers. Uh, she is a behavior psychologist. She, she talks a lot about purpose and meaning in life. And she says that purpose is a feeling of being connected to something bigger than yourself. Purpose is a feeling of being connected to something bigger than yourself. And she kind of talks about three different connections. She says purpose is when you're pursuing your passions, when you're connected to your passions. She says purpose is when relationships are thriving, so you are connected to others. Uh, and purpose is a pursuing of the goal of excellence uh, so that you are connected to the future. Um, so for her, the definition is you are connected to your passions, you are, you are connected to others, and you are connected to the idea of future. And therefore, you, you have this, this meaning and purpose in your life. Well, um, I, I think biblically speaking, there's even a, a next step. It's this idea of being connected to your Lord and Savior. Uh, and when we're really talking about the purpose of feeling uh, connected to something bigger than yourself, there's nothing bigger 
than, than, the, than the command that God has for us. There's nothing bigger than being connected to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we're disconnected from that is when we feel that we are not living a life of purpose. Or when we're disconnected from that or when we are living in a, a place of stress is when we feel that we are not living a life of purpose. And she also talks about the different um, phases of purpose depending on your life stage. Uh, and, and so she talks about the first stage, uh, the first phase as a phase of discovery. And, and this is when you're younger and, and, and like everything is exciting, right? Um, do you, you know, like, and there's, there's a reason why nostalgia is such a big thing. Like you look back because when you're younger, everything was so exciting, right? Like the first time you drove, like, do you guys remember when you first got your driver's license? For those that have your driver's license, like the first time you drove, how awesome was that, right? It was amazing. Now when I have to drive, I'm like, dang, I have to drive? You know, when someone else is going to drive me, it's like awesome. Someone else drive. You know, like there's, you know, like the, the, the first time you went to a sporting event or the first time you had a crush and they liked you back or if they, no one ever liked you back, then, you know, hopefully soon, right? Um, there, there's, that, and that's why, like, you know, like coming to age movies is, is, is so awesome. Like, you know, like you guys ever watch Wonder Years? You know, okay, it's, a, it's an amazing show. Okay, I'm dating myself. Anyways, and the second phase is the uh, phase of pursuit. It oftentimes happens in your early 20s, early 30s. It's this idea of wanting to conquer the world, right? You have, you have so much ambition. You want to conquer the world. The next phase is the uh, phase of balance where you realize you're not going to conquer the world. So you want to kind of align yourselves to all the different aspects of life that are important. Friends, family, faith. And then there's the phase of impact. Where you're a little older, you're a little wiser, uh, maybe perhaps in your, in your 50s, in your early 60s, and you want to make an impact in the lives of the next generation. And the last phase, she says, the phase of savoring, where you're about to die, and you realize, I better just enjoy the time that I have. And what she talks about is that oftentimes the reason why we get so lost or so stressed or so filled with anxiety is because we are in times of transition between these phases and we're trying to figure out how can we now find meaning and purpose in life when we are no longer in the previous stage. And for many people, these times of transition are so difficult. Like imagine the, when you first graduated college, like how, how much anxiety and stress did you have because you didn't know what to expect? Because it's no longer, like, people are no longer like, oh, you're still young. You could, you'll figure it out. They're like, what are you going to do with your life? You know, or, or maybe you're outside of your 20s and 30s and, and you realize, oh, I'm no longer going to conquer the world. But you're like, oh, what am I going to do now? Like, am I just going to be like a, like a dad or a mom and just live, you know, you know the two, two and a half kids and two Honda Civics or here, two, two Teslas, you know, or whatever it is. You know, then, so these transitions and phases that we go through fill us with a level of stress and anxiety where we no longer are able to fill, uh, live a life of meaning and purpose. And so practically what that means is this. For Thomas, he was in a time of transition. It was no longer about following Jesus, the the not crucified, unresurrected Jesus. It's about following Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Lord. And for us, oftentimes, we are unable to fulfill a life of meaning and purpose because we are disconnected from the reality of who Jesus is. That if Jesus is truly our Lord and Savior, and if we've truly submitted to the rule and authority of who he is, then the peace 
that comes with that is understanding that no matter where we are in our lives, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. To ignite us, to motivate us, to, 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 to support us in following after the purpose that he has for us. To live as disciples for his kingdom and for his glory. Let's pray. I just want us to take a time of, of quick reflection. Um, I know it, it might have seemed like I, I, I spoke on a lot of different things and, and maybe there's one thing that kind of stuck with you. Uh, but the question I have for you is, uh, what are you living for? What is the meaning and purpose that you are seeking? Are you living for your own kingdom? Are you living for your own grandiose vision of who you think you are? Or are you living for a purpose that is greater than you? Are you connected to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And are you willing to surrender and submit to his rule and authority? Take a few moments to reflect and think about that. And then we'll continue on in service with our response song.